Hello, insiders, and a very pleasant good afternoon to you, wherever you may be. This is your host, Eb Wilkinson. Bruce Ash is on assignment, moving rocks. No, he didn't get sentenced to hard labor in a Chinese concentration camp, but we're going to talk about the Chinese concentration camps later on in the show. Thanks for tuning in. We welcome your calls today at the Corazon Cabinet Studio hotline at 790-2040. We've got another great show for you today. First up is Bob Wells. Bob is a former advisor to Vice President Cheney on Latin American national security policy. We'll talk about the crisis at the southern border, in spite of what New York District 14 Congresswoman with a degree in economics who discredits her degree, it is truly a crisis. We'll also get what's going on in China and Hong Kong. After the bottom of the hour, we'll be joined by former NRA president and editor-at-large of the Washington Times, David Keene. Last week, Governor Ducey rescinded any remaining mask mandates and COVID-19 restrictions, allowing businesses to operate freely again. Pima County and the city of Tucson are ignoring his mandate. Let's wait and see what the Attorney General has to say about that. And State Representative Joseph Chaplick introduced HB 2770, the Mask Freedom Bill, which passed the Senate along party lines. Governor Ducey has five days to veto it, sign it, or do nothing. If he does nothing, it becomes law. Let's hope the governor does the right thing. Feel free to call him at 602 542 Three one, and let him know what you think. That's six zero two five four two four three three one. Here in Arizona, COVID cases have plummeted, COVID deaths have plummeted, and hospitalizations have plummeted. Unless you came to Arizona illegally and failed to take a COVID test. Meanwhile, in states that have opened up last month, Mississippi and Texas continue to plummet. While daily cases in the People's Republic of Michigan, New Jersey, and New York once again are climbing. Coincidence? I think not. Let's go get going with our first guest, Bob Wells. Captain Bob Wells served as the Special Advisor of National Security Affairs to Vice President Dick Cheney. His policy portfolio includes the Western Hemisphere, Canada and the Americas, from 2003 to 2007, where he provided policy coordination support for defense policy and homeland defense issues. Bob, let's talk about border security. Admiral Craig Fowler just made a statement before the Senate Arms Committee two weeks ago. What came out of that that you think is important? Well, thank you very much, Eb, and uh, hello to all the listeners. Uh, what I think is important with uh, Admiral Fowler, who is, of course, the uh, commander of the U.S. Southern Command, is his emphasis on making sure that we take a larger look at the Americas themselves. We need to look at not just the U.S. border, but we look at the entire Americas, the circumstances that are occurring down in the Central American republics, what's happening with regard to the transnational criminal organization facilitation of human trafficking up to the border. That includes the coyotes. 
drug ca- uh, trafficking as well. And then finally, he is focusing on a sense of urgency, making sure the policy gets coordinated so the Americas are not overlooked. Obviously, you've got China, you've got Russia, you've got Iran, you've got North Korea, but you still have the terrorist threat, and in particular, the transnational concerns that he had as he testified in the Senate Armed Services Committee. Talk about those. He spoke about the actual uh, impact of the uh, transnational criminal organizations. I think it was one of the most important things to come out of his uh, testimony. He talked about the need for a whole-of-government approach, building the capability and the capacity of the United States government, a whole-government approach to deal with the circumstances on the border. Of course, here in uh, locally, uh, Tucson, uh, you have the Customs and Border Protection, the Department of Homeland Security, the coordination with the uh, Health and Human Services Department, especially with the Office of Refugee Affairs and making sure that people get safely uh, relocated, especially children. But there's a bigger picture that's involved here with regard to drug trafficking, fentanyl. And if you look at the actual importance of uh, what we uh, want to preserve and protect and his mandate as a commander to home, homeland defend, defend our homeland, he's bringing up some very valid issues that need to be addressed. So when you're talking about the transnational criminal organizations, I've got this nice printout that was provided. Um, we're seeing uh, 87% of Latin Americans believe corruption is rising, especially with uh, where TCOs are prevalent. That's right. Uh, small, arm, small arm smuggling from the U.S. Now, isn't Mexico getting guns from other places besides the U.S.? To my knowledge, yes, they are. Okay. And uh, that gets into the actual uh, import of illicit weapons uh, through the, the transnational organization, the cartels. Uh, most of the cocaine that comes from the Andean Ridge in Colombia comes in through uh, Mexico, and it makes its way up uh, via the cartels, both the eastern as western, western uh, transit passage of the cartels. There are weapons involved in there. They don't just come from the United States. They come from other places like Venezuela, uh, you have the uh, the Russians' influence also in the Americas, and in particular uh, with their uh, relationship with Venezuela. Okay, you talk about the Russian influence and how that's actually working here. Well, the Russians have interest, obviously, with uh, their previous Cold War Soviet Union position, uh, in particular with Cuba, but they also looked at the socialist revolution inside Venezuela uh, with the Maduro regime, the Bolivarians, and they're looking at making sure that that regime continues to thrive. So they're they're looking at uh, tr- not the people, the regime, the regime itself. They have okay. to they have to stay in power, but they also have to have uh, resources and defense capability, which includes weapons, which includes uh, port visits by Russian Federation Navy uh, vessels. There, they're looking at the same interests that the United States always has with regard to uh, energy security for the Russian Federation because of what Putin wants to do. But they're also looking at their interest uh, with the uh, ideological socialist revolution that's in Venezuela, which is leading uh, many of the uh, revolutions, Bolivia in particular, uh, Ecuador, Peru, uh, those influences are very strong, and they they want those to be supported in the Americas in support of Russian interests. Okay, and so now we've got the Russians involved. We've got gun trafficking. We've got drug trafficking. Yes. um, We've got human smuggling. Well, I think the human smuggling is critical. It's obviously right in front of us. Uh, you can see it on the, along the Texas border and the Arizona border, the California border itself. You can see the impact on uh, civil society 
uh, and governance inside of states, local areas. But I think one of the more important areas that impacts us all, and it's a big political issue inside of Arizona, is fentanyl. If you're looking at the actual fentanyl transport, the Chinese facilitation of raw materials, as uh, Admiral Fowler uh, discussed during his testimony, uh, into into the Americas, where they actually uh, prepare the fentanyl and they transport it up there. It, it's included with methamphetamine. Where are they preparing this? They're preparing it down in the uh, Sinaloa and down in the southern parts of okay. uh, Mexico. But they're they're part of that uh, transit passage of the actual illicit material, uh, methamphetamine, cocaine transfer. But these these networks are critical. There's one other lesson I'd like to convey to, to so we step back and we look at this as well. When uh, I'm an Enduring Freedom veteran, I learned about Al-Qaeda, and you looked at what we had in the Bush administration as a mantra, and that mantra was, it takes a network to defeat a network. And if you have a transnational criminal organization network, we have to have a similar network strength in order to mitigate and to basically deny and defeat that particular network against this illicit, illegal activity. Do we have that network now? We don't, and that's that's the important way forward, I believe. If you look at what the and you have to really in government, you really have, we have some great people in government, and uh, the politicos come and go, but there's some really good people that generate intelligence that focus on organizational capability based on their mandates. But if you look at our new Homeland Security Administration and uh, Homeland Security Department, if you recall, President Bush established it in 2002. And that particular uh, department involves Homeland Security, Customs and Border Protection, U.S. Coast Guard. If you look at their actual resourcing over the last 20 years, they only get a a small fraction, about 2%, if I recall, of the total national discretionary budget in order to develop capability. That has to be improved. Customs and Border Protection, Coast Guard, uh, ISR. Right here in Tucson at Davis Monthan Air Force Base, right across is the 12th Air Force, which is the component right. for the U.S. Southern Command. So there's more that could be done if we give the priority to the Western Hemisphere, in particular the Southern Hemisphere, our friends in the Americas. How much of that is going to happen under this current administration? That's a great question. I hope that we really look at it in a sober way. Now, Mr. Biden, as the President of the United States, is not only the leader of the Democrat Party, but also is the commander-in-chief. And if he's listening to his commanders and he's listening to uh, the Secretary of Defense, as they're, they're right now, after his uh, discussion on the 10th of March, are doing the Combatant Commander Review, COCOM Review, and they're going to basically make sure that they have uh, force allocation over to the particular COCOMs that require it. Now, you have the Southern Command, as I just mentioned. You have the Indo-Pacific Command in Hawaii, and then you have the European Command, Central Command, and you have the uh, Northern Command up in uh, Colorado Springs. So if you're looking at where you could possibly take allocation or risk allocation for resources, uh, I would argue that the European Command with NATO uh, being a very strong uh, alliance there could probably take a little bit of risk. And the resources need to be allocated for the U.S. Uh, Indo-Pacific Command and the U.S. Southern Command. We have a caller, Gary. So, uh, Gary, go ahead. <laughs> Hello, Gary. Hello. Thank you for taking my call. There's one other thing that I would like to bring to the people's attention. I live in uh, Bisbee, and uh, our sheriff 
did a uh, interview uh, with Judge Janine, and they were st- doing the the recording at our Coronado National Park, which is on I ninety two. And I want to let you know that when they did that, uh, he was standing against the barbed wire fence. And uh, from that position at Coronado National Park to our Fort Huachuca, which conducts all of our military intelligence and all of the facilities and drones and training for the drones, is nine miles from the border, an open border. And... People need to think about that because that is very vulnerable. And the first thing in military operations is take out communications. And uh, so not many people know about those things. Did you know about that? Bob? Yes, I did. In fact, uh, have great respect for uh, Fort Huachuca and its role in uh, training the uh, Army intelligence officers that uh, are the personnel leaders that go throughout the world to actually support intelligence requirement in the Defense Intelligence Agency in the U.S. Army. I also know about the uh, the distance. In fact, I've actually recently traveled to the Coronado National Monument, and I, I actually saw the, uh, the border area and uh, know how close it is relative to Sierra Vista and Fort Huachuca. I think your point is well taken with regard to uh, military objectives and looking at what a force would pop- possibly do to knock out communication. That's why you need military security. You also need to have good surveillance, you know, good intelligence and surveillance, good INW with regard to threats. And you need to, I think, to your real point, we know where the vulnerability is, but we really need to really focus on intelligence and intelligence uh, advanced warning, making sure we have, uh, as President Bush used to say, human-mint out uh, to understand what these organizations are doing. And then to my previous point, uh, Fort Huachuca, the U.S. Army, Defense Intelligence, they all play a big role in providing that picture of what the actual threats are to our country. And uh, I think what Admiral Fowler said was we need to really focus on the U.S. Southern Command and the Americas. There's a sense of urgency. We cannot uh, be complacent. Gary, follow up? Yes, we had a very important apparatus uh, that was the blimp. You saw the blimp when you came down to Fort Huachuca, didn't you? Yes, I saw the blimp, and I've seen the blimp in uh, also in Washington, D.C. And we ought to get advertising on that blimp. <laughs> because they have taken it down and disassembled it. For some reason, they are no longer using it. And that's quite disturbing. Yeah, I have no idea why that is. <laughs> But thank you for your show. Great. Thank you, Gary. (coughs) Bob, one of the things that concerns me, um, you've got the Pentagon that said Tuesday it received a request from the Department of Health and Human Services to temporarily house unaccompanied migrant children at Joint Base San Antonio and Fort Bliss, Texas. San Diego Convention Center, best known for hosting the annual Comic-Con International Convention, will soon be used to house unaccompanied migrant children The city and county announced Monday HHS is uh, already using part of the K. Bailey Hutchison Convention Center in Dallas to shelter about 1,700 children, though they've got space and capacity for 2,300 children. 
is this a failure in government's responsibility to secure the nation, or is there some higher responsibility to the world that it's executing? It's actually two things. Uh, I would say that the United States has a duty to protect, and if we have people that are vulnerable, uh, we certainly need to, as, as our government does have a mission with the Health and Human Services Department, the Department of Defense is a supporting agency to support health and human services. The point, though, is that we could anticipate this particular migrant flow coming into the United States. And the fact, when you ever make policy, like we did in the Bush administration, I've seen the Clinton administration up close, before policy is made, you make sure that you have the best intelligence, the look at the outcomes, the the positives, the worst case outcomes, the best case outcomes, making sure you have your people and your organizational capability ready to support your policy change. I think what happened with the uh, Biden administration is when you change policy through executive order and you're not taking into consideration the current situation, the as-is situation when you uh, assumed office, what you've done now is you've dislocated uh, your policy imperative. You're not getting the results that your policy intended to uh, exhibit when you actually sign the executive order. And if you're out in front of your government, if you're out in front of your professionals in the Customs and Border Protection, if you're out in front of your professionals at Health and Human Services, what you've done is you've actually put them in the lurch. And we are duty-bound as the United States of America to support uh, humanitarian assistance. That's what we do. But if you don't have the capacity, and as you just mentioned, Eb, you're going to have to look for that middle ground or that stopgap measure where you're going to have to approach the Defense Department because we can. And if you still remember uh, back with Mr. Cheney, uh, when we established the new uh, Homeland Security Department, because of the resourcing and the capability level that they uh, achieved in 2002, and if you look at really where they're at now, we're actually in a much better place, but we can't scale. And Mr. Rumsfeld used to say, we will have to do it because the American people expect us to do it in order for the Homeland Security Department to get uh, plussed up. Well, you're talking best case, worst case scenario. Yes. Look, I go down to the border a bunch. They've uh, taken away the manned Border Patrol checkpoints in a number of locations. I was out in California two weeks ago. Going into California, they've put up a Border Patrol checkpoint to check for illegal aliens going into California. They've removed the one coming out of California. So the 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 number of border patrol agents we need is down i mean it's huge we need a lot we don't have a lot what's the best case scenario with all these illegal alien migrant children coming into the u.s and then what the heck do we do with them well the best case scenario is to take care of them obviously in the new near term but we also have to have a uh, expanded approach as dwight eisenhower said if you have a problem enlarge it you need a whole government approach to this actual circumstance. So you build capability. That includes the uh, expanded border patrol personnel that you need. You need to have the housing for the folks. And you also need to have this diplomatic arm. And uh, I think uh, Admiral Fowler did have a meeting with uh, Senator King of Maine. And Senator King of Maine actually proposed a, uh, a, a larger program that would be like the Marshall Plan to support the Americas and the tri-border area. So that diplomacy piece of that is a, a big part of the next steps. I hate to do this. I'm getting a, the hangman's news from uh, producer Tom. We've got to go to a quick break. 
I'm proud to welcome my good friends at Tucson Iron and Metal Retail to Inside Track as an advertiser. Jamie Kipper and her staff are conservation experts. They sell round and square steel tubing, metal plate and roofing materials, as well as new and used steel, aluminum, and stainless steel to ranchers, artists, interior designers, roofers, and do-it-yourselfers, just like all of the listeners here. Tucson Iron and Metal Retail is open Monday through Fridays, 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. and Saturdays, 8 a.m. to noon. Tucson Iron and Steel Retail, 701 East 36th Street. Call 520-209-1576 or go to tucsonironretail.com. And when you do call, mention this ad and receive an additional 10% discount on their already great prices. It's termite season. Fear the blue trucks from Essential Pest Control. Go blue at Essential Pest Control. We'll eliminate those bugs, bees, and termites. And stop paying too much to that national provider. Buy local for great service and affordable rates. Call Essential Pest Control because termites fear the blue. Run for your life! Call for the blue trucks from Essential Pest Control. 886-3029. That's 886-3029. Or check online at EssentialPest.com. Support local youth and education by purchasing Casas Adobe's Rotary Legacy for Learning raffle tickets. There are dozens of prizes, including a grand prize, one-week stay at a beautiful Kauai, Hawaii condo. Travel not included. Casas Adobe's Rotary Club gives thousands of dollars each year in scholarships to high school seniors. You will already be a winner with the knowledge you have helped further youth education in our community. Purchase your Legacy for Learning raffle tickets at casasadobesrotary.org. Welcome back to Inside Track. This portion of today's show brought to you by Jamie and Gary Kipper from Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus and Essential Pest Control. These are two great locally owned companies that you can depend on. Bob, we're back. We're not going to have time for China. Let's keep going on the border. We'll have you back for China. But this does involve China a little bit. Uh, the border, uh, the PRCs offering a billion dollars in loans. Um, they're also talking about what is this one belt, one road initiative in trade? That's a great question. And looking at the Chinese, they just recently completed their uh, 14th uh, Communist Party uh, five-year plan, looking out to uh, 2035, actually. But what they've done is they've, they've focused on the one belt, which is the Silk Road, and the one road, which is the sea uh, trade and they're focused on infrastructure investment. It's up to six to seven trillion dollars that the Chinese are prepared to invest. The bottom line is that we're going to have to, if we're in a competitive environment with China, we're going to have to look at their infrastructure investments and their strategy. And the one thing about the Chinese, they follow up. They follow up with regard to that relationship. They use their their political will. They use their diplomacy. They use trade agreements. They use prestige in order for them to win the customer, win over the actual country. So they're doing that in Africa, doing Asia? Africa, Asia. They're doing it in the Middle East, doing it with Iran. They're looking at the key ports that they have along the seaways. You know, the, if you think of Shanghai South, you know, with the actual seaports, those are the actual sea roads that are going uh, through the Malacca Strait uh, into uh, India and over to Africa, and in, in particular to the Persian Gulf and the Suez into Central Europe. If you look at the old Silk Road, there's actually six lines of uh, transportation that they're using uh, from Beijing north, Habin north, the industrial north, uh, out toward Vladivostok in Russia, across the, the Russian Federation into St. Petersburg. So 
this is a very serious, uh, sig significant strategic effort that the Chinese have adopted in the 13th plan that they had in the Communist Party. Xi Jinping is the nationalist leader. They're intent on achieving this, and they're actually uh, challenging, you know, not just the United States, but also the the world that is as it was with the IMF and all the different instruments that they could use for financing infrastructure. Talk about the uh, Beijing using COVID-19 as a pretext to donate all this 5G technology and the safe city programs. Well, it's about linkage and it's about using their capability, which is the uh, COVID-19 vaccinations to uh, support the development of their particular uh, country of interest. So they're, they're using uh, it as a deal, looking at access for their particular interest to support infrastructure development and allowing the government that they're talking to to basically make the decision to allow China to give them the COVID-19 as opposed to the United States, give them the COVID-19 vaccination. So my concern with the 5G networks is uh, using it to track everybody. Well, you're going to have the bandwidth to do it, to be sure. But if you look at the actual Huawei uh, incident and uh, the fact I thought the Trump administration did a great job in accounting for the competitive nature and also the intellectual property right imperatives that were uh, part of the Huawei and the 5G uh, infrastructure. So we need to continue on that path. We need to look at the national security implications of Chinese communications technologies, in particular associated with Huawei. Wow. Bob, so much information. I I've, have so many more questions, not just on the uh, southwest border, but also on China. We'll have you back to do a separate China show. We've got to go to the bottom of the hour break. So uh, if you'll stay tuned, we'll be right back. Customers come first at Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. A lot of the, the cities and the counties around have initiatives for artists. I think we're one of the premier artist suppliers for steel. First Saturday of every month, you can come down early and actually go through the scrapyard across the street at seven acres of metal. You can walk through with our people and pick out what you want. It's always interesting to see what the artists have done. We've done uh, actually a couple projects with the U of A engineering department and music department where the engineering music students came down together. They had to pick something out of the scrap and uh, they had to build an instrument. And we have one of those in front of the plant. Some really cool things come out of the scrap. Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call 209-1579. Stop by the yard. 701 East 36th Street. Open Monday through Saturday. It's termite season. Fear the blue trucks from Essential Pest Control. Go blue at Essential Pest Control. We'll eliminate those bugs, bees, and termites. And stop paying too much to that national provider. Buy local for great service and affordable rates. Call Essential Pest Control because termites fear the blue. Ah, run for your life! Call for the blue trucks from Essential Pest Control. 886-3029. That's 886-3029. Or check online at EssentialPest.com. 
support local youth and education by purchasing Cassis Adobe's Rotary Legacy for Learning raffle tickets. There are dozens of prizes, including a grand prize, one week stay at a beautiful Kauai, Hawaii condo. Travel not included. Cassis Adobe's Rotary Club gives thousands of dollars each year in scholarships to high school seniors. You will already be a winner with the knowledge you have helped further youth education in our community. Purchase your Legacy for Learning raffle tickets at CassisAdobe'sRotary.org. Welcome back to Inside Track. Bob's here, Eb's here, Bruce is still moving rocks. Before we get to our next guest, do you have a home improvement project you want to get going, but you're worried if you can afford the luxury you deserve? Corazon Cabinets sells top quality cabinets by J&K, Legacy, and Conestoga. Visit the Corazon crew at their new showroom, located at 4700 South Park. Meet Joy, Allie, and David, and see their fabulous collection. Let them play in the kitchen or bath of your dreams. Call 488-2266 and get to work beautifying your home in 2021. Coruscant Cabinets, luxury you can afford. I've got them in my house. Tammy's getting them right now in hers as we speak, and Bruce will be getting them as well. Okay, on to our next special guest. David Keene is the editor-at-large of the Washington Times. He served as president of the National Rifle Association, chairman of the American Conservative Union, and during college, chairman of the Young Americans for Freedom. David, welcome back to Inside Track. Always a pleasure to be with you. Hey, a lot of stuff going on. Where do you want to start? <laughs> it's hard to determine where you ought to start. I'll tell you one of the things that concerns me, Ab. Uh, in the last few days, what's really been demonstrated is that corporate America is ready to kowtow uh, to the uh, presidency of, uh, of uh, Joe Biden and his, his uh, woke Democrats in Congress. Uh, I think the, the most recent example is in, in uh, Georgia, where the legislature passed a series of uh, electoral reforms designed to... Uh, in, protect the integrity of the of the elections uh it was signed into law by the governor uh and the president of the united states uh in a uh, interview with the press said that uh, he would support the idea of moving the uh all-star game out of uh atlanta in protest uh major league baseball took uh, i'm probably exaggerating a little bit but about five minutes to agree with the president and uh, pull the, the all-star game out of Georgia. Meanwhile, Delta Airlines attacked the Georgia government, uh, as did Home Depot and as did Coca-Cola and other companies. What the president has managed to do and what Democrats in Congress have managed to do is take a new generation of corporate executives, make them partners uh, in their partisan uh, agenda, and use them to accomplish things that the government couldn't accomplish directly. That I find very, very troubling. Well, one of the things that's really troubling about that, number one, this wouldn't have happened under the uh, former ownership of Home Depot, but you've got Delta Airlines and America Airlines saying it's terrible and wrong for you to have to show ID to vote. Exactly. But by the way, if you want to get on our airplane, (laughs) you've got to show ID. (laughs) You, You can't buy a fishing license without showing your ID. Uh, there are a, a million things in this country that require you to show an ID, all of which I guess are more important than actually voting, uh, because uh, the idea uh, that one would have to uh, to uh, identify oneself as a, as an eligible and legitimate voter uh, is anathema 
uh, to the Democrats now in control of the Congress. You know, Eb, uh, they have this bill that's already passed the House called uh, uh, the For the People Act, uh, H.R. 1. Oh, boy. Completely rewrite uh, all of the electoral rules would, would make it impossible for any state uh, to uh, uh, have local officials challenge the legitimacy of a ballot, uh, would ban uh, voter ID nationwide, uh, would... Uh, uh, it would res- it would it would grant uh, voting rights to felons in all states, and it would ban state efforts to clean up the voting rolls. In other words, periodically, states are supposed to uh, check the voting rolls against various databases to take off dead people, people who left the state, and the like. This would make all of that illegal, while legalizing ballot harvesting. Uh, and uh, and and the the thing that developed during the last cycle, where they would just mass mail ballots to everybody, uh, it would ban those states. It would ban activities in those states that require that a voter request a mail-in ballot before one is sent to uh, sent to their their residence. So this would be a federal takeover of uh, all of the election laws. Would eliminate the states' uh, role in it, uh, and would essentially. Uh, it's, it's being supported essentially because it would, in their view, help the Democrats, and I think it probably would. Uh, and that's and, and the president is part of this. They consider it so important uh, to uh, uh, put them in a position to manipulate the elections in their own ways uh, that they're willing to do almost anything. You know, when Georgia passed uh, a package which, in fact, uh, uh, not only requires the, these identifications, but uh, codifies a, uh, easier access uh, to the polls for legitimate uh, eligible voters, the President of the United States uh, said that was uh, racist and attacked the law to, so blatantly that the Washington Post, which you wouldn't expect to do this, uh, through their fact-checker awarded uh, President Biden what they call four Pinocchios, uh, for just making charges that are blatantly false and untrue. Uh, and that's what's been going on, so that voters and most of the American people, according to one Democratic strategist, they can do this because people don't really pay attention to process questions. And so they can they can jigger the election rules so that they benefit in the next and future elections. You know, I wondered, uh, thinking about H.R. 1, you remember the president's recent press conference? Yeah, absolutely. Where he was asked about... Uh, 2024 and who the Republicans might run, and he said he didn't even know if there'd be a Republican party in 2024. All I could think of was that he was fantasizing about a world run under the rules that the Democrats are trying to write, because they are trying their best to build a one-party state uh, that will eliminate opposition and make it impossible for them to give up the power that they won last November. You wrote a recent uh, op-ed in the uh, Washington Times, or or a... you wrote an article in the Washington Times talking about uh, 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 David Shore. Yes, he's a, uh, he's a uh, uh, progressive, as they call him, uh, data expert and, and, and analyst. And it is his view, and this may, may, may be the reason that the Democrats are so frenzied in their attempt to get this legislation passed. In his view... Uh, this last election and the and the process we're on endangers uh, the Democratic control of the Senate, the House, and eventually the White House. 
for a variety of reasons, one of which is that the minority vote is finally beginning to crack. Uh, you know, How so? Not, it's, not that the, it's not that the president, the Republican presidential nominee or Republican congressional candidate is going to get a majority of the black vote. But here in Maryland, for example, uh, if, the, if, the, if about 5 or 6% of the black voters shifted from Democratic to Republican voting, uh, this blue state would become a red state. And that's true all around the country. Uh, and, this, and the other the other thing is the uh, is the fact that Hispanics moved toward the Republican Party in even greater numbers than it appeared right after the election. Uh, and, and analysts now are saying that the movement was even greater. And what Shore was saying is that this is going to continue. And if it continues, the Democrats have to do two things: one, they have to change the rules; two. They have to demonize the Republicans as racists to try and keep blacks on the plantation. He didn't put it that way. I did. Uh, and, and three, they have to add a couple of new states, Puerto Rico and the District of Columbia. Otherwise, they lose the Senate. Uh, and because of the uh, redistricting, they're liable to lose the House anyway and then the presidency uh, in four years. So to Democrats, H.R. 1 is the only way that many of them can see uh, consolidating their power and holding on to the power that they've now gotten. Otherwise, their control of the government may prove to be temporary. So H.R. 1, basically, that's their last uh, last uh, grasp. Yes. Shore says you've got to pass H.R. 1, uh, and you've got to uh, come up with a couple of new states. Okay. Otherwise, uh, otherwise, you're in danger of losing everything. Let- and in fact, if you just look at history... Uh, one of the reasons that uh, things shift between one party and the other, Ev, is that the winning party in most elections overreaches. <laughs> you know, they, right. they, they, and no no party has overreached as much after an election as the Democrats are doing right now. What that results in, usually in the off year, is a backlash, which means they lose House seats, they may lose some Senate seats and the like. Uh, and they can't afford that, because while Donald Trump may have lost the presidency, their safe majority in the House uh, has pretty much vanished. Uh, And so now they're within a few votes of losing the House, which they could do just because of redistricting. But it also means that in the House itself, they have to maintain the kind of discipline that could end up splitting their party into pieces. Uh, So they're they're not as uh, firmly in control of the government as, as they might hope to be. Uh, and they're they're trying to do as much as they can to change both the country on the one hand and the rules on the other, so that they can not only accomplish what they want to accomplish during the next four years, but they can make it difficult or impossible uh, for anybody who opposes them to win the next presidential race. Well, the, redist- uh, the uh, redistricting that would go away under HR one, correct? No, uh, well, the, the, the partisan redistricting one, but the would go away because they would establish uh, independent commissions, which are ten, which tend to be run by academics and are therefore democratic. But the the uh, the actual partisan redistricting doesn't affect that much. Uh, you know, they, there's a lot of talk about it, and there was a time in our past when it did. Uh, but now uh, there may be three or four votes, three or four districts around the country uh, that are really gerrymandered. The rest of it pretty much comes out the way it would come out anyway. So, uh, but that's that's to guarantee their House majority because they're in danger of losing that because the the outside 
outside the uh, urban centers, uh, they're not gaining, they're losing. And if, the, uh, if there's a backlash among voters in the suburbs, which is likely, uh, and if there's a peeling away of minority votes in the cities, many of the states that are now considered safely Democratic would become toss-up or even Republican. So one of the things you said is they've got to bring in two new states. Right. Puerto Rico and D.C. Exactly. Why is D.C. not a state? Uh, because the Constitution uh, established D.C. as an independent, uh, uh, independent of the states, as a seat of government, uh, and uh, and there have been efforts over the years to make it a state. Uh, they now get to uh, to vote in presidential elections, but they are but they are essentially a uh, creation of the Constitution to be overseen by the Congress, because the District of Columbia is not just the seat of government, but is the home of the Congress. That sounds good. David, I hate to do this. We have got to take a break. Well, uh, that happens. Oh, hang on. Wait a minute. Tom is waving me off. Perfect. Good news. We okay. don't need to take a break. We're moving on. All right. This is, e- this is even better. Okay, so now we know about D.C. What about Puerto Rico? Puerto Rico uh, has... Uh, Puerto Rico is a more difficult case for the for the Democrats in Congress because a lot of Puerto Ricans like the status they now have. Some of them want statehood, and some of them want independence. They've had they've had referenda in the past, and in order to become a state, the state legislature, uh, as it were, has to request that the Congress grant statehood, uh, and it, there has to be a clear uh, a clear consensus request, and it's not. It's not impossible, but it's unlikely that such a clear request could come from Puerto Rico. So the, if, you're, if you're a Democratic strategist, target one is the district, target two is Puerto Rico. Okay, so if D.C. is not a state because it's federally controlled, it's part of the uh, Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, mm-hmm. what do they do? Just vote it to be a state? Yep. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and of course, the Constitution is not something that most of these folks have read anyway, so it, w- it wouldn't bother them very much. Well, and and, uh, and you know, not something that... they're defending anyway either. Hey, um, right. we've got Eric as a caller. Do you have uh, let Eric go ahead? You've got a comment. Yeah, I have a comment regarding why D.C. should not become a state. I acknowledge the constitutional argument, but also D.C. belongs to all of us, all of the citizens of the United States. It's our capital of our country. It is not a separate state that that somehow becomes like Arizona or Wyoming. It belongs to us. It's there for us to see our government and to visit, and it belongs to us, not anybody in particular. That's why I believe D.C. should never become a state. Well, Eric, you're right, and in fact, uh, that's the way, essentially, it's written into the Constitution. It's not it's not one of the states. It wasn't one of the colonies. It was carved out uh, of the new nation precisely to be uh, the the uh, head of the, go- the the home of the government and the property of the people, not of any single state. Eric, follow up. Hello. Hello, Eric. Do you have a follow up? Yeah. Yes. I I don't want our state, for instance, Arizona, to have to compete with the state of Washington, I guess the other state of Washington, the capital, for president or anything else, funds, federal money, everything else. It's not that way. That's why Washington has to be separate, Washington, D.C. 
has to be a separate entity. It's what makes it special. I couldn't agree with you more, Eric. Uh, the Democrats don't want it in opposition to any of those arguments. They want it because they figure they get two Democratic senators out of the District of Columbia, and they need those two senators to keep control of the Senate. Uh, all of these new proposals, particularly as they're embodied in this legislation called H.R. 1, are political in nature. Uh, they want to change the rules for their, for their political benefit, not uh, not because of some policy analysis or constitutional analysis or not to create uh, equality or a fair playing field or anything of that sort. This is all a design to increase their ability to hold on to power in the future. Right. It's all about power. One word, power, power. That's it. Eric, thanks for calling. Thank you. David. Talk about the filibuster and why that's so important. Well, I think if you look down the road, it's, it's, it's even worse than that. The filibuster is incredibly important. After all, it, uh, it, it's one of those things that uh, when you're in the minority, you like, and when you're in the majority, it's a pro- uh, bothersome problem. Uh, the uh, Democrats, while the, while the Republicans were last in control of the Senate, invoked the filibuster some 250 times. That's, this is the bill they now say, uh, this is the, the right that they now say should be abolished because the minority shouldn't be able to be taken into consideration as policies and things are developed. It's because it, The filibuster has been an important part of the Senate because it does two things. It guarantees that a runaway majority of senators can't ride roughshod over the minority. And in the process, it literally forces... Uh, over over time, the two parties to try to get together and come up with something that's more broadly acceptable than might be the case if one of the parties is in total control. Uh, and the, if you're if you're sitting on the moon and looking at Washington, uh, one of my uh, good friends in the Senate was Lamar Alexander from Tennessee, who's just recently retired. And I was having dinner with Lamar the night that Harry Reid, as you'll recall invoked what they then called the nuclear option to get rid of the filibuster uh, for appointments, uh, not, not for legislation, but for appointments. Uh, and the Republicans opposed that uh, and opposed it and opposed it, and finally he decided he was going to do it anyway. Uh, and they did it, and Lamar said he had uh, talked to him that day, and he said, okay, go ahead, eliminate the filibuster for judges and other appointees, and you know what's going to happen? We're going to get control of the Senate at, one of, at, at some point. And when that happens, Harry, you're not going to believe what's going to happen. And, of course, the Republicans did win the Senate. And as a result, uh, a Republican president was able to appoint Supreme Court justices and federal judges that, has, that have in some ways transformed the federal judiciary. Uh, that would not have been entirely possible. Uh, had, the, had Harry Reid not exercised a nuclear option. These things come back and bite you. And when you're in the majority, there's a tendency to think you're always going to be there so you can get rid of the rules uh, that protect minorities. The problem is that that usually isn't the case. And what H.R. 1 and some of these things are designed to do is to make sure that it is the case so that there won't, so that they can adopt essentially dictatorial powers over the over the uh, body of Congress and never have to worry about losing those powers or those powers shifting to the other party because they'll make it impossible to do that. But let's look at the, at the dangers of the long-term 
fight in which they're now involved. Much of H.R. 1, particularly the federal takeover of everything in terms of of electoral rules, uh, will in all likelihood face serious constitutional challenge. Uh, Within the next few weeks, the president is also going to go after the Second Amendment and pass pass or, by executive order, uh, put restrictions on firearms ownership that would also be subject to really serious constitutional challenge. Uh, in addition to that, uh, some, of his other, some of his other provisions are like that. These people that are in control are not stupid. Uh, they know that to accomplish what they have to accomplish, they have to first of all get rid of the filibuster, which they may well be able to do. But then they have to deal with the Supreme Court. And once they pass all of these various things, you can bet in the Democratic caucus they're going to say, look, we've accomplished much, but it's all in danger because of that Supreme Court there uh, that uh, is dominated by people we don't like. So what we now need to do is change the court. Uh, And I think that that becomes part of the end game because otherwise the interim steps that they're taking to change the way America is governed won't hold up to constitutional scrutiny. So we're looking at a path that's that's very dangerous. And uh, at the end of that path, there'll be no uh, there'll be no way to stop uh, what a majority of the Democratic Party, which is now not the old Democratic Party, but it's this uh, party that this is a party now that thinks that uh, Chuck Schumer is a cons- is a conservative. Yeah. You know, wow. Think hey, about that for a minute. <laughs> yeah. David, I'm sitting here with Bob Wells. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bob, go ahead. Hi, David. Uh, I wanted to pick up on your point with regard to corporate America and, and the collusion, if you will, with the uh, d- Democrat uh, policy and take it overseas. And from your vantage point there in Washington, D.C., how do you see U.S. business reacting to Chinese uh, pressure and Chinese bullying against their intent? You know, back in the 18th century, uh, European uh, business leaders uh, used to talk about how 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 rich they could get if the Chinese would just add one inch, to, you know, to the robes that they wore, that the mills of England would run forever. Now we have Disney, the National Basketball Association, and company after company looking at China and saying, "Look at all those people." Uh, what's if we just if we're just acceptable to their government if we just do what we need to do to be able to sell uh, our products we're going to be really rich and at the same time we can get stuff made there uh, even if it's made by slave labor uh, so this is an instance in which they have cajoled uh, and uh, and threatened once they got them in it's as if it's as if corporate America is hooked on the drug of Chinese money, uh, and will do anything to make sure it keeps flowing into their coffers, so that you have company after company. You have you have Hollywood changing uh, changing the scripts of movies so they don't offend the Chinese. Uh, you have airlines changing the names of the destinations so that uh, they don't offend Beijing. Uh, you have the NBA. Uh, taking the position, just siding with them on issue after issue. And it's really interesting that you have companies in this country take, uh, take Delta, take uh, 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 American Airlines, take uh, Coca-Cola, that, uh, that find doing business in Texas and Georgia offends their sense of, uh, 
of uh, human rights, but that doesn't it doesn't bother them that in China today there are millions of people in concentration camps. Uh, that doesn't bother them. That's okay. Uh, it's a little bit like when President Biden said, "Well, they have different norms than we do." <laughs> oh my yes, God! They do. Nazi Germany had different norms, and so did the Soviet Union. Uh, China has different norms, but our business people at this point seem so addicted uh, to to either Chinese money or the prospect of Chinese money uh, that they'll do almost anything to make sure they have some access to it. And they don't see the hypocrisy of that at all. They don't, and it doesn't bother them in the least. Yeah, that's just insane. Just insane. And I, and I really do think that is probably the most troubling thing that's happened because it's being used more broadly than that, Eb. Think about this. Uh, the, the president, uh, in, in making some of, his, uh, some of his proposals and restrictions, knows that the government can't do some of these things. So what he's doing is asking companies, to partner with him, and they should do it, uh, wow. so that it gets around the constitutional objections. You know, uh, if, if you're looking at economic theory, uh, the uh, socialist-communist theory was you take over all the companies and run them. The fascist theory was you partner with them. They continue to hold title and make money, but you control, and they do what you ask. So the way this economy is moving it's becoming sort of a proto-fascist economy in that sense. David, we've got one minute and 12 seconds left. Um, Joe Manchin, tell me about him and the filibuster. Is it going to work or not? Uh, Joe Manchin will not be available uh, to the Republicans as a vote against the filibuster. I think if the two Democrats, and you know that maybe you know this better than I do, but if the two Democratic senators that might be available uh, are your... Uh, yeah, cinema. Uh, your Senator Cinema and Senator Manchin, I would say that there's a much greater likelihood that Senator Cinema will go against it than that Joe Manchin will go against it. Uh, Manchin uh, is a is a publicity hound. Uh, he loves the camera. Chuck Schumer has been able to play him throughout his Senate career like a violin, uh, and he has never, in the final analysis, voted against what Schumer wants on any major piece of legislation. He always goes through what I call the Manchin three-step. He says, I'm against it. Then he says, I've been studying it. Maybe we can come to some compromise. And at the end, he says, well, now I think I'm for it. He's going to be for getting rid of the filibuster at, David, uh, at the end. thank you. That's all we have time for today. I want you back. We'll talk later. Until next week, this is Eb Wilkinson wishing you a very pleasant good afternoon.